Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 412 The system was old, fading. The red sun had expanded until it had devoured all the lesser planets, like an insane god devouring its children. Then it had slowly retracted, pulled back, until it was a dim purple thing. It was old at the end of its lifespan. Its orbits were dark. It put out little light, little radiation. Even the pressure inside of it had lessened. There wasn't enough left for it to go nova, much less supernova. For millions of years that it swept through with the rest of the stars, even as younger stars had been born, even as other stars had gone out with a flicker or an eruption. The stillness should have lasted forever. Instead, when the fading gravitational flux caused a small eddy, there was an increase in gravity instead of force. It twisted, intensified, and got thicker. It began to lengthen and deepen. Not in real space, it was swirling down into somewhere else. By the way Terran scientists measured the multiverse, it was funneling downward through the other universes, past end space, past subspace, past dead space, past dark space. Even below what Terran science theorized was the bottom of the multiverse, into a universe that was beyond dead, beyond dying. The funnel twisted, with a flash in end space, one end suddenly widened out, stabilizing in a world of energy and protomatter. Ships appearing in the energy, moving out of the energy and into end space. Strange, twisted ships, ships made of exhausted matter, using exhausted energy that barely had the fuel, the energy that reached in the place the end space around the dying star. Great soda sails, looking more like wings of some foul unborn creature unfurled, drinking in the light of the dying star. The ships arranged themselves around the Terran space, the larger end of the funnel and the linked to another one. They began putting out energy, adding the vast quantities of energy available to just anyone who sought to gather it just to twisting gravity. The opening grew wider, the twisting funnel began to stabilize. More ships came through. These took up orbit around the ancient and baiting gas giants. They set to work, siphoning off the gases, siphoning off the rare materials, fabricating the tools and structures needed to create things in end space where it was so different from where they were from. It had taken centuries, eons, to develop methods to balance the energy from end space particles to the particles from a nearly exhausted beyond dead universe. The ships set about it. The ships moved with a dark purpose around the dying star. Their ships heavily shielded from the bright light as the red star. The ships stayed far out, where the gravity from the star would not weigh upon them so much, so that they could dwell in comfort. They had used the vast gravity of the star to slow things down outside, increased speed inside, a trick of temporal mechanics that they and they alone had mastered. They built more ships, more fabrication stations, even as a more of their own kind made passage through the wormhole, connecting a dying universe to an energetic mature one. They buttressed and fortified their systems, long solar rotations passing as they built their ships, built their war machines, and prepared. 
True, adjusting the temporal flow was bleeding off the energy of the star, decreasing the lifespan of it by centuries for every year that it was accelerated within the bubble, created by those who arrived from the rotten corpse of a universe long surrendered to entropy. They did not care. After all, weren't all the resources theirs and theirs alone. Finally ready, the beings created new ships, warships, stealth ships, and crewed them with carefully created crews. Those who commanded the ships sent ships to the far-off place. They doubted that it was intact, but one could never tell. The ships, all three of them, returned. It was intact. From the vast breeding farms, to the fabrication scaffolding, to the matter and energy storage, it was all intact. Several of the constructs were nearly finished. There was plenty of life still existing that had been developed, nurtured, and husbanded by those who had created the ships. The ships returned with news. The beings within the ships rejoiced coldly. The resources gathered for long aeons were still in place, still in use, still being put towards the program. The leaders of the beings looked out at the stars, twinkling painfully brightly in the sky. You belong to me, each of them thought as one. The girl was different than her classmates. Her classmates had spent weeks or months in charters, listening to the rumble of combat above them, surrounded by the walls, protected by security, with plentiful food and medical care, holding right to their families as they huddled inside the bunkers and shelters and rebounds. Months ago, they had been allowed on the surface to emerge from shelters blinking and shading their eyes from the sun, which blazed in the sky undiluted by the ozone layer that atomic weaponry had torn away, like a gauze curtain before a fuel air charge. They'd been back to school, back to normal life, for months before the girl had arrived. Some had seen her initial arrival when she'd stepped through the metal detectors and they had gone off. She'd been patted down, walked through again, only for the detector to beep. She'd been taken into a private room and then released. Several times she'd been caught drinking alcoholic beverages during school hours. Each time, her fellow students waited with the glee of the drama addicted to hear how she'd been suspended, or worse. Each time she was sent to the counselors, not the normal ones, but the ones who saw some of the teachers. Each time, she was allowed to return to class the same day, usually within an hour of being caught drinking in some isolated and off-the-path location. As for the girl herself, she was quiet, rarely speaking. She often just stared at her fellow students, often just acted as if she did not hear the person speaking, watching around the speaker rather than the speaker herself. Pranks and teasing did little. She either ignored them or avoided them. Some of her fellow students noticed that she seemed overly aware of her clothing, her locker, her possessions, and where people were located. She stood out in gym class, working hard, almost maniacally, to the point where she had better scores and could perform better than the males her age. She stood out, in other ways, too. The scars. The scar across the top of her head, starting just above and between her eyes, extended across the top of her head and down her back, almost to the base of her skull. Those who had gym class with her had seen the scars on her. Scars that did not have gentle smoothing of surgery. Thick, upraised keloid scars that were angry red and purple mixed with her fur. When asked, the girl simply did not reply or answered it, it doesn't matter to the questions. Her coloration was normal, but seemed almost washed out somehow, sometimes. She was often poorly groomed, not seeming to care beyond making sure her fuzzy fur was clean. Her clear eyes constantly moved, 
more than her peers. Seeking out exits where her peers and teachers were standing, any fast movements. Her stare was intent, making others nervous when it focused on them, but was often seeming to be focused on something far away. Within a month, her fellow students ignored her and left her alone. They could tell that the ostracization, which worked every time to bring someone acting aberrantly back to the fold, was fine with the girl. She seemed to be fine with not having friends, not having peers, to stand outside everyone else by her own lonesome. But it was more than just the girl. Several girls her age had siblings that went to school with the younger siblings. The tales told by the younger siblings seemed incredible, like lies of adventures that surely the younger siblings were making up to shock and impress their fellow students who had hidden in the shelters. Her little brother often showed off the scar that he claimed was from when he had cut his hand boning a fish and when he had cut his foot chopping wood. The little sister showed a scar on her hand where she claimed that she'd closed a shotgun wrong and pinched her flesh. A scar on her arm where she claimed that the knife slipped when she was skinning her harvunk. They all talked about the rain that had been black and sticky, how the snow had been black more than once, how the night sky used to light up with the bright flashes on the horizon. The teachers shushed them. A few girls asked their parents if it was true what their younger siblings said the girls' younger siblings talked about in school. The parents told them that some people had it rougher than those who had been in the shelters, and to mind their own business. But it was more than her looks, more than her siblings. It was how she acted, how others treated her. The girl didn't react to the teasing about her scars. She seemed uninterested in attempts at seduction and romance put forward by the boys her age or even older. All too quickly, the boys, even the older ones looking to put another notch in their ears, gave up, listing her as a lost cause. Some students noticed that the teachers were careful with her, that she was escorted to the counselors two or three times a week. The school did an emergency practice alert to ensure the children knew how to get the shelters quickly and safely, to make sure that everyone knew what to do. The strange girl grabbed her backpack and ran from the school. She dragged her sibling off the playground, and teacher had tried to stop her, and she had struck him twice. A short, sharp blow to the diaphragm, followed by a chop to the back of the head, before she had caught up to her sibling, who had not slowed down, who had kept running Lorsek had caught her nearly two miles outside of town in a stolen car, speeding down the highway. The gossip ran fast and thick for the week that she was gone, that she had been shot by Lorsek, that she was in jail, that she was a criminal, that she would never be back. Instead, the girl returned to school, silent, marching, uncaring. Some of the more observant students noticed that the next two emergency drills, the teachers took the girl outside and sent her to the counselor's office. They remembered their parents' words. Some people weren't lucky enough to be in shelters. Now mind your own business. Most of the students had bonded over the shared trauma of being locked in cramped shelters for weeks and months. How it was miserable, how there was no privacy, no room to run, how everything was monitored and watched carefully. How it was frightening. A few knew the girl hadn't had that luxury. One girl, of the highest social status in the school, asked her parents and a strange girl had been on the surface refugee camp. If she'd been inside the walls that the Terrans had built and guarded, her uncle had been present. Her uncle that she used to enhance her own status as he had been on the surface the entire time, even when the Terrans were fighting. 
Some said her uncle had actually forged during the long war. He had fired weapons. Had taken lives. The girl had asked her parents and a strange girl had been in the refugee camps had described the scars. Her parents did not know. They told her over dinner. Her uncle had called her over, had pushed up sleeves and a long-sleeved shirt like he always wore, like the strange girl wore. He'd shown her scars, thick, upraised purple scars, angry scars that rose up out of his fur, like the girl had. Down there, there was a warrior being crowded, her uncle had told her as he pushed up his sleeves. When the young girl had seen the scars on her uncle's arm, she looked at him and swallowed. He nodded slowly. Up here, my love, at least it, it was war. The girl of high social ranking, where the knives were words, rumor, and innuendo, had hugged her uncle and gone to do her homework. The next day, the word was out. The strange girl was to be left alone, be polite, but leave her alone. The boys were to leave her be, not to disturb her, to let her be content. Those that disobeyed would face the queen bee and all of her power. The students, even some of the teachers, got the message. The girl was left alone, which was fine by her. The ships had left during yesterday's tomorrow, making a risky translation. The red giant had intersected the place at one time, the whole reason for entering endspace at that point. The ships made the translation because to their drives, yesterday was tomorrow today, and two points were the same. This time, the place was nearly empty, only howling radiation expanding waves of particles. Nothing remained, only shockwaves. The beings couldn't believe it. Even worse, there were no moving forward or backward. Something had anchored a temporal stream so that it could not be altered. That was more infuriating than the place, and all of its valuable resources being obliterated. The beings were furious that someone had dared interfere in that which was the beings viewed as the domain of themselves and themselves alone. Worse, they had to return the long way. Not through proper and esoteric method of moving from one place to a place that had intersected with that place or would intersect with it. It did not matter. It just meant that it would take longer. They increased the inverted gravity well of the star, making it so that time moved faster inside the system, that it moved at a speed enough that they and they alone could do what must be done before the outside could. They needed to ensure that the time dilation was working correctly. They sent a ship crewed not by servitors or lesser ones, but by a full quorum. Outside the temporal dilation effect, they could feel it. Other temporal zones. They returned to warn their fellows. The beings paused, considering it. One zone was important. It vibrated and pulsed with aggression and malevolence. Before they could come to a decision, the other places released their temporal holds, their temporal manipulations. The beings managed to interrupt the other one, hold it in place, change it. However, it wasn't enough. They knew now that they faced an enemy who could fight them at their own terms, who could not only conceive of attacks they preferred, but counter them, prepare for them, even wage war on the same battlefield. The beings sent forth an armada, moving the system that they desperately needed, one of many, but one that they had been to before. An enemy who had been attacked and managed to drive off the attackers would not expect to be attacked again. The Amada left the bubble. Melanve watched as the video presentation with boredom. She could remember seeing it before the Slurpees came. 
She had turned to look out the window towards the sports field outside when she saw it. The strange girl arced in a chair, her hands coming up to claw at her own chest. Her eyes had rolled back, her ears were straight up and she was backwards on the floor. Melanvay jumped from her chair while everyone else was still exclaiming in shock or trying to figure out what was happening. She had learned first aid in the shelter, had helped the staff with the medical clinic. She knew the seizure when she saw one. She pushed the desk away, clearing away the area around the strange girl. The girl's eyes suddenly opened, and her hands came up to grab Melanvay's shirt. The strange girl pulled her close. They're coming, she gurgled again. They're coming again. I can see them. They're coming. She lapsed into unconsciousness. The nurse ran in, taking cover, letting Melanvay know that an ambulance was on the way. Melanvay moved into the hallway, stepping outside the zone that the datalings were set to intraschool only. She placed out a single call to the one person she knew would listen. Call Errolf, that girl, she said. She says they're coming. Who says, Mally? Her uncle asked. Dambry. End of chapter. Chapter 413. Sixth Most Time, a.k.a. Captain Cyber Armor U, stared at his armor as it moved on its cradle out of the wall and into the arming bay. It was sneak, black wall steel with red of the wall steel herd on the edges. The faceplate was done up in the skull of the great Lanark lad, with eyes that glowed red, nostrils that breathed steam from the heat sinks when the armor was at full operation. There were a hot plate firm points where powerful weapons would be attached on the flanks and the upper back and the chest. The armor was thick as the tech of the great herd. The armor was as powerful enough to tear battle steel like it was wet plant fiber. The Hicken mechanic slapped the side of the armor, expressing pleasure with the way that his ears and whiskers were set. This baby captain, the Hicken, one ex-alert, said, Command believes that you'll have at least 11% more protection, 23% more sustainability, and 12% more endurance wearing this new version. Saber Amaru quivered slightly in excitement. When will we be testing this armor? He asked. The cybernetic interlock plugs tinged with anticipation, as he could feel the cybernetic linkages on all three of his hearts were keeping his hearts from beating rapidly. He blinked, all six of his eyes clicking and whirring. Soon... I've got the firmware and hardware updates by your side if you're ready, Nexlert said. He reached out and pulled a forward complex braid of thick cables. It'll be a rough one, full synaptic overwrite in some places. New hardware, too. It's all tested, but it's tested well enough for the Terrans to deploy on the battlefield, not like the Great Herd's testing system. Which is good, for I would surely have died of old age and been forgotten before the Great Herd would have decided if the upgrades had actually existed. Cyber Ayamaru said. Exlert laughed and shook his cable. Now you're ready, Captain? Cyber Amaru nodded. I am ready. Exlert smiled. Excellent. He hit the button on the cradle, moved out. It was open and one end, allowing Cyber Amaru to walk into it. The forward frame had a ring at the top for his head to go through. At Exlert's wave, he moved into the cradle. Once he pressed his chest against the forward frame and he pushed his head through the ring, the sides of the cradle folded up around him holding him securely in place. One by one, Exlert connected the cables to wall steel plugs embedded in Cyber Armour spine, joints, in the middle of the long spaces of his limbs. One by one, Cyber Armour saw his systems undergo maintenance knockout. 
He recited his mantra and remained calm even when he was fully disconnected from his body. He could feel the data flowing into him. Feel the thick, warm, honey feeling of the data streaming into his limbs, into his nerves, into his mind. He was able to examine it, look at the changes, examine the patch notes of the update. He would have increased tactile sensation. His limiters would disengage 38.83% faster, allowing him to enter full combat reflex mode even faster. He was 11 miles per hour faster when running. His reflexes had been increased. His combat reflex mode was faster. He now had a dedicated warboy system in his body to help him process all of the data that the modern battlefield. His eyes rebooted three times at the end other than he noticed an increased clarity and color range. More than natural. More than Anaclan than Lanaclan. His hearing clicked on and off several times before a game back on and he was made aware of the different modes. He worked through the tutorial program, teaching him how to adjust and gain filters for different sounds and levels of audio. More than a few updates needed him to go through tutorials. The new implant radio, the firmware patches to his non-combat reflex systems. He would now be able to eat normal food rather than specifically formulated Nutri-Paste. He could now enter water and be fully submerged for up to 300 hours without any risk. Ixlert was busy, opening up panels and carefully removing pieces inside of the body of the massive planet Talan. He would set the piece that he had removed on the floor, take a piece from a box and place it where he had removed a piece. Then he would put the old piece into the box and close it, moving it to his left before pulling a box to his right and opening it. Cyber Arbor U saw a tiny green mantid barely a foot tall, climbing up the cradle and sitting on the outcropping. Little green mantid, known as H2A, flashed an icon of a wrench. I'm fine, Cyber Arbor U said, through his mostly disabled dandling. Full chapel check after excellent done, 82A sent back. That'll be good, Cyber Arbo said. I am eager to return to wrestling my people from the cold grip of the precursors. Heard rumor, 82A said. What rumor? Cyber Armour asked. Excellent noted that Cyber Armour's data link was exchanging data on a short-range channel devoted to green-manted engineers and logged the numbers real quick. Idiot fleet dropped in system, 82A said. Admiral asking for volunteers. Sign me up. The ferocity of the martial orders appeals to me, Cyber Armour who said. They are who saved me, who gave me aid, who scraped me from the ground and convinced me to submit to them Ripperdox. I would gladly join that crusade. If they would have me. 82A thought about it. Cyber Amaru had been an infantryman in the Great Herd. Men others had deserted. He had continued to fight, continued to deny the precursors their desires. He had fought for nearly three days alone. When the soldiers of the Dark Crusade of Light had found him, his one remaining limb had been an arm, and his sole hand held tight after a primed grenade that he intended to use to take one last precursor machine to hell with him. The Ripperdox of the Dark Crusade of Light had healed him. Although Cyber Armor U knew not many of his people could withstand the torment and agony of the Dark Crusade of Light's medicine, he had fallen there, half of his chest torn away, holding tight to his rifle. Again, the Dark Crusade of Light had healed him. Again, and again he had fallen in battle. Each time the Crusade had healed him. He had been there when the war steel herd had formed from those that the Terrans had saved, had taught to fight, had armed and equipped. Cyber Armor U had been the first Lanaclan full conversion cyborg in recorded history. Cyber Armor U 
had considered the fact that he had always been told that his body was too involved, too refined, too superior to accept something as crude as cybernetics, to be the height of amusement and irony as piece by piece his body began to be replaced, his limbs replaced, and more and more cybernetics had been implanted into his body. He had been proving ground that had resulted in others being saved. He was the first, ensuring that all those who came behind him would be healed with metal rather than cloned flesh if they so wished. Yes, they had been agony. There had been terrible pain. There had been a time when he had wished to die, had wished that he had been killed upon the battlefield rather than turned into the cold surgical blades of the river docks of the dark crusade of light. Now... He had no fear of blades and saws and nerve stitches of the Ripperdox. He had moved from the dark science of the Ripperdox to the cold chrome and wall steel science of the Terran Confederate Armed Forces, to the arms of the cybernetic organism collectives, surgeons. For nearly two years, he had fought on a planet after planet, side by side with the heavy warborgs of the Terran Confederacy, marched through fire, smoke, radiation, and fear to wrest each planet from the cold metal claws of the precursor machines. Now the war steel herd had ships of their own, reconfigured and reconditioned Lanaclan military vessels, true, but reconditioned and refit by the mad lemurs of terror. Cyber Armor U was in the Bay of the Terrible Freedom, a war steel herd armored assault troop transport, a holy Terran idea, where Lanaclan and great herd troop transports were thinly armored, if at all, the Terrans armored them as if they were battleships, armed them like a cruiser, and sent them into close orbit. On the bridge of the terrible freedom, ship Most High Admiral, Upper Deck, Harnex Burger King, Mercy, stared at the deep hologram of space in front of him. There were nearly thirty of the Borak and obstinatious Dark Crusade of Light ships near him, all hanging apparently motionless in the space between stars. On the holotank in front of him was a massively armored male Terran on split screens with a heavily armored female Terran. Both wore heavy, ornate armor, scarred from battles past. Below them were two more figures, one male, one female, both Terran. While the armor was shaped the same as it featured more spikes and skulls and chains and dripped blood, the top two were obviously living, the bottom two had the gray pale skin and black veins of the dead. Admiral Naumursi turned his head slightly so that his exo knew that he was looking at the Rygedian female. What are your current standing orders? Naumursi asked, his artificial lung wheezing. To hold position until command determines where we are needed, the Admiral Reardeck stated. Alert the fleet, Admiral Naumursi ordered. We will interlock with the Dark Crusade of Light, our brothers and sisters in Wallsteel and Fury. Are you sure, Admiral? Admiral Reardeck Schwarkaki asked. More for the wrinkle than anything else. I am sure, as they have succored us, we shall assist them. Alert War Steel Herd Command that we ride in Wall Steel and chrome with our brethren in fury. Not mercy, ordered. As you command, Admiral R.D. Schwalke said, saluted. Not mercy, turned to Holotech, staring at the Terrans that he had come to appreciate. We ride together, brothers and sisters, in fury and chrome. Down in the heavy assault cyborg mechanic bay, Cyber Armour felt the deck begin to tremble, felt the strange vibration phantom bone marrow of FTL drives warming up. He smiled, sending a smiling emoji to 82A. He looked down at Exlert. When the mechanic looked up and gave the best smile he could with the artificial hide of his head pulled back, 
At last, again to war. End of chapter. Chapter 414. Undrat knew that he wasn't the brightest neo-sapient in the galactic arm. None of these people would ever be known for hyper-intelligence or cleverness or ingenuity. They were not a grand philosophers or intellectuals. They admired intelligence, admired cleverness, even though comprehending it beyond acknowledging it was largely beyond their capabilities. That did not mean that these people were the worthless. These people were the kind of people that slogged through history, their eyes on the goal, ever walking forward. In the long, drawn-out march of time, they had discovered each thing slowly and progressed to the next, even if it took centuries or millennia. It did not concern them that they were the considered one of the less intelligent Neo-Sapien species. They knew what was important. Hard work, perseverance, endurance. For over 50 million years, they'd been one of the Neo-Sapien species watched over by the Unified Council. Their homeworld had been forgotten as they spread out amongst the land-to-land worlds. They were largely uninterested in colonies and expanding their race. They were content to enjoy the finer things in life. A job well done. A difficult and lengthy problem that the solution was perseverance being accomplished, enduring whatever had to be endured. Over the aeons, Andrat's people had always worked for the Lanark land. They were the proudest of the fact that they were often moved by the tens of thousands to a new colony to provide the manual labor that a robot had not yet been programmed or fashioned to do. They had been part of the Unified Council for so long that most of the other species viewed them as furniture, or standard-issue part of anything that required labor. Andrat's people were robust. Their thick skin let them endure harsh solar emissions. Their thick bones and heavy muscles let them handle work on planets with up to 1.6 G, more than twice that preferred gravity of the rest of the Unified Council species. Their internal organs allowed them to eat and flourish on bare nutri-paste without even the most of additives that a majority of the races required. They could eat rudimentary crops and usually even local food species with no difficulties. They healed quickly, even from injuries that would kill most near-civilized and civilized species. But they weren't the brightest or the sharpest. Andrat had worked in a warehouse when the humans came. He and his men had watched the humans land had seen them and had admired their form, much like their own. Bipedal, two arms, moving with power even if they didn't always move with grace. He had largely ignored them, preferring to keep to his own work, which was carrying boxes and crates, running grab dollies, and doing other hard jobs. His muscles were thick and solid, his endurance deep and rapidly recovering. He could work a whole nine hours and after fifteen hours of rest be ready to work again, he could lift his own body weight above his head. The Lanaklan, who was his overseer, had always praised Undrat and his fellow workers. After all, Taknan people were at the backs of the colony that had been founded on. He was valuable property for the Fu-Uka-Uka main industrial conglomerate, with the barcodes drawn in his arms, across his back, chest, and forehead, and across the back of his neck that he had been born with, a barcode tattooed into his very gene code. If he had been ever curious enough to look, he would have found that he and every one of his fellow Taknan were more valuable to the conglomerate than a forklift. He would have just nodded, not really understanding why it should be surprising. He could work on any surface and he could stand on, could work in different gravities, in different weather, with different cargoes, 
without the need for programming or expensive mechanical maintenance. Of course he was more valuable. He could be put into cryosleep to go to the next world and virtually ignored for centuries if need be. The Terrans, the humans, had arrived and then came to great roars of There is only enough for one! Which made no sense to Undrat. Did not the dining facility have enough for everyone to eat? Did not the Fu-Uka-Uka-Utmain conglomerate not own all the resources on the planet and the people upon it? The reply to them, Then die alone! Made no sense to Undrat either. He could not imagine being alone for long. Tocknon and every other species capable of thinking were always in groups. Before he could be disturbed by having to contemplate the roars, the sirens had gone off. Undrat had been sent into the shelter beneath one of the great warehouses. He and his fellow Tocknon sat patiently, eating and sleeping and everything else according to the computerized schedule. At times, the floor shook and faint vibrations could be felt. Eventually, the roar of, There is only enough for one, had ceased. The shelter had sounded the all clear, and Undrat and his fellow Tocknan had been allowed back onto the surface of the planet. They had emerged, blinking at the harsh light that somehow penetrated the thick cloud cover. The skin flashed a deep bluish green in response, reacting to the increased radiation from the sun and the clouds. The overseers had gone, fled, left. The overseer in charge of Undrat and his fellow Tucknan workers was confused and angry. He approached the Terrans, and whatever it was that the Terrans told the overseer seemed to anger the overseer more. Undrat himself heard the overseer tell the Terrans that the Tucknan people were valuable assets, extremely valuable property of the Fuk-Uka-Uka-Utmain conglomerate, and that he would not believe that the conglomerate had abandoned them. Then the conglomerate had returned with the forces that kept unruly colonists and workers in line. Nilsek, Korpsek, and the fabled executor security forces arrived in ships. Andrat had heard the overseer tell the Terrans that of course the forces coming in weren't hostile, they were just there to protect valuable conglomerate property. Then the alarm sounded and the shock and distressed o-looking overseer led Andrat and his fellow Tocknan workers into the shelter again. Strangely enough, the reasons that Andrat did not know that he did not think to ask, even more workers were led into the shelters by the overseer. Many different species, some of whom even did the more intellectually demanding jobs of monitoring computers and other important systems. The Andrat simply sat in the shelters and waited. They counseled the other species not to complain, after all. There was food, air, water, and enough room to sit and even exercise facility to maintain one's strength and endurance. Again, there was the rumblings and vibrations. The overseer seemed extremely concerned often wringing all four of his hands as he sat in the facility overseer's office. At one time, Andrat himself saw something strange. The overseer was talking to a hologram of another overseer, who was obviously giving the overseer orders. The overseer suddenly picked up the chair that Tucknan had used when sitting in the overseer's office and smashed the tank with it. Three sleep shifts later, the elevator came down and a squad of armored overseers with execsec written on them exited. They asked for the way to the overseer office. Andrat was tasked to show them. Andrat knew his people were not considered very intelligent and that he was an average Tucknan. But within standard species medium did not mean stupid. He heard the executor overseer sneer about how Andrat and his people were lounging in such opulence and safety and how they would be better used to clog up guns of the Terrans rather than inhibiting the shelter better put to use by their betters. 
His people were incurious, but not unintelligent. Mandrat did not like what they were saying. His people were not animals. They were not wastes of resources. They were valuable and coveted property of the conglomerate, and his overseer was proud of them and admired by his peers for overseeing such industrious properties. When he got to the overseer's office, he was ordered to stand there, as if he was a robot. That did not bother him. He was used to short commands. The executors ordered the overseer to evict the Neo-Sapiens so that they could be armed to force the Terrans to fight them, and the overseer protested. Andrat did not care about the argument at first. It was between beings who far outranked him and usually gave orders. But one statement got his attention. The exact sack commander said it, pointing at the overseer. Kill this fool! Andrat reached out as the exec officer drew his pistol, put his hands on either side of the Lanarktalan's torso, and twisted as he squeezed. The ribs crunched and the spine cracked as Andrat twisted the Lanarktalan's torso and bent it to the side. The other Tachnan did the same. Andrat's father, Ildrift, brought his fists down on the arbiter flank spine of the one next to him, breaking the Lanarktalan in half. The overseer merely stood there and watched. Nero pistols went off and Nero bolts thudded into Tuknan, who felt them and slight burning tingle where they hit and raised welts like they had been bitten by a particularly aggressive insect. A plasma pistol was fired twice, catching a paper clothing on fire, but only causing the skin of the Tuknan to darken and painful burns of the first two layers of skin to happen. Then it was over. The overseer stood there and nodded slowly. You are loyal and valuable property, he said softly. You did not betray the conglomerate. The conglomerate has betrayed you and every being in the shelter. The overseer looked up from the bodies of the dead Lanarktalan, killed by heavy strikes of blunt fists and the pressure of the Tuknan group. Gather their weapons. Any who come down that elevator are killed until further notice, the overseer said. But no more came down. Finally, Andrade, who went everywhere with the overseer, even slept in the same room as him, always carrying a riot shield and a heavy plasma rifle, saw the overseer talk to one of the Terran levers on his bit display. It was nearly a month later when the overseer stated that he and a hand-picked group would ride the elevator to the surface and speak to the Terrans. Andrat rode the elevator silently, holding onto the rifle. If the Terrans attempted to harm the overseer, then he would kill them. Unlike Tuknan, they would be as fragile as everyone else in the universe, built to challenge even the Tuknan people if a fist did not do it, then he had a plasma rifle. He would not let the overseer, who had shepherded and cared for the Tuknan since the time of Andrat's father's 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 time, had come to harm. The clouds were low and heavy. The air smelled like burned plants and like a greenhouse that had caught fire. The air was heavy with soot and ash and lightning ripped in the clouds and the ground in equal measure. The overseer had been wise to order everyone into hazardous environment suits. The world did not look as it had. Andrat looked around him. It looked as if a forest had grown where the tarmac of the great warehouse complex had once been, and had then been burnt away to leave behind sticky black ash. There was a heavy vehicle present, a large tracked vehicle with a heavy cannon on it. The back was open, a ramp leading from the interior of the vehicle to the ground. Six bipeds with two arms walked down the ramp, all of them in some kind of black armor. Andrat could tell that they were Terrans. They moved like the Tuknan people, with strength and power, even though they were taller and thus more slender. He nodded to himself that they had all weapons, after all. 
The overseer had stated that the conglomerate was fighting the Terrans over the Tuknan and the Neo-Sapiens on the planet. Of course they were. The Tuknan were valuable property. Two of the six Terrans were carrying something fascinating to Andrat. They wore what looked like some kind of loading frame that Andrat had been trained to use when the object to be loaded was too much for even his strength. The frame was also attached to a heavy-looking gun with a barrel as thick of Andrat's arm. The bullets leading into the gun were bigger than Andrat's fingers. It even had a small screen angle for the Terran to be able to look at it. A data cable went from the gun to the armored arm of the Terran. While the Terrans and the overseer spoke, Andrat stared at the large gun. Curiosity, finally stirred to life by an entire situation, tickled him. A strange feeling, but one that urged him to ask a single question instead of just mutely staring. Is it heavy? Andrat asked, speaking without first being asked a question. He was not addressing anyone of rank. He knew that. The overseer was talking with the two who had obviously had ranking. There were merely two with big guns and two others with heavy-looking rifles that looked almost unfinished. The Terran looked at him, its face hidden by the black in front of the helmet. It hefted its big gun. It's pretty heavy. How much does it weigh? Andrat asked, curious as to how much a Terran could carry. 92 kilograms outside the man-pack frame, the Terran said. Total weight with Gunner's man-pack frame is 120 kilograms. Andrat's data link, which helped him with things that he was too slow to do, told him how much it weighed, which was as much as he weighed. Is it effective? Andrat asked. The Terran gave a nod. Light and medium armored fighting vehicles don't stand a chance. If a tank gives me too long, I'll rip it apart. The Glankers and the Dwellers Spawn don't stand a chance. Then it is good, Andrat said, falling silent. He admired the gun's lines, how lethal it looked. If he had that, he could keep anyone from harming the Overseer, the Tuknan people, or the other Neo-Sapiens in the shelter. The Overseer had stopped talking, turning to look at him. Androt pointed at the heavy gun and the Terran carrying it. May I look at it more closely, Overseer? Androt asked. If it doesn't bother the Terran, you have my permission, loyal one, the Overseer said. He turned back to the Terran. They are a good people, and I do not allow them to come to harm. They are loyal. Work hard and ask for little in return, but what they need to survive. Answer his questions, Corporal, the Terran said. Thank you for indulging him. Curiosity in his people is not common, the Overseer said. They are slow to act unless ordered, but ultimately a gentle and trustworthy people. Andrat put the rest of what the Overseer was saying out of his mind as he slowly moved over to the Terran. One always moves slowly and obviously when approaching a stranger. Have you handed along... Andrat asked. This particular one. About a month or so, the Terran said. Command ordered at least one heavy gunner per squad once the Dweller spawn started spawning heavy units in greater numbers. Andrat looked around. The vegetation looked weird to him, and he realized that he never really paid too much attention to the plants unless he was tending to a greenhouse or a field of crops. What are Dweller spawn? he asked. Bioweapons from outer space, the Terran said. They landed a month ago. We had to use atomic and biowarfare to counter them. Oh, Andrat said. Have you been in the shelter the entire time? The Terran asked. Yes, Andrat said. Still staring at the weapon, he could see how it operated, although he was not sure about the function of the large orbs attached to the back of each of the ammunition boxes. Perhaps more ammunition, but why store it in a round object when the rectangular box would be more efficient? How long? The Terran asked. 523 sleep cycles, Andrat said. We will have to go half ration soon. 
The Terran nodded. After a while, the overseer turned around and made a motion at the Tuknan. Follow! We must prepare for something. Andrat was slightly disappointed to leave an interesting-looking weapon behind, but he followed the overseer. They moved to one of the cargo-loading areas for the shelter, and the overseer brought up the elevator. He ordered the Tuknan to rest, and they waited. After some time, the overseer waved Andrat and his cousin Akdru to follow. They moved over to the heavy door and opened it. Heavy, blocky-looking vehicles towing the heavy trailer was backed up to the door. The overseer and the two Tuknan used hand motions to guide the three trucks in as they backed up. When they reached the point halfway to the cargo elevator, they stopped. Terrans got out and moved to the back, lowering the ramps in the back. Inside were boxes marked as food, medicine, clothing, toys, blankets, entertainment, and survival parts. The boxes were thick, heavy metal, the kind Andrat had only previously seen in spaceships. One of the Terrans told the overseer that he could have the boxes sterilized by fire or UV light. It was safe for the contents. The Tuknan worked without complaint alongside the Terrans to stack the contents of the trucks onto the elevator. Once it was fully loaded, the overseer and Andrat's father rode it down. He was back in half an hour, and Andrat was proud of his fellow Tuknan in the shelters for unloading the elevator so quickly. It went on until finally the overseer told the Terrans that the shelter's stocks were full again. Andrat was glad. He was tired now, but he did not want to show it in front of the Terrans. When he rode the elevator down with the last load of supplies, the overseer told them all how he was proud of them, how they had done their people and all the people in the shelter proud that day. When asked how much longer that the people must stay in the shelter, the overseer startled them all. Until the Terrans say it's safe, the mad lemurs of Terra fight against the planet itself as if the planet was corrupted by something vile from outer space, the overseer said. They are winning, but it is slow. We will be safer in the shelter. This is our home. Should we not fight beside the lemurs? Andrat asked. The overseer looked at him. I... I'm proud of you for your willingness to fight next to the lemurs, but no, you are untrained in combat. I will not waste your life. Andrat found pleasure in the fact that the overseer still considered him valuable. So Andrat stayed in the shelter, helping maintain it, waiting patiently for the Terrans to say that it was all clear. Less than a hundred sleep cycles passed before he was allowed to leave the shelter. The habitation where he had lived was gone, a pile of scorched rubble now overgrown with grass and moss. The dining facility was little more than crumbed plascrete, and the vast warehouse was flattened with the tarmac reduced to thick soil. The overseer led them to a place with thick walls. For almost a week, he simply waited to be told what to do. He sat on his bunk for most days, watching the colorful programs on the vid slate that he'd been given. The cloth, one-piece clothing, hangs comfortable as boots. After the overseer told them that they would help the Terrans, he carried boxes, moved machinery, helped the Terrans as they kept Refugee City Tau working and providing comfort for everyone. One day, the overseer came to Andrat's room and he shared with three others. The overseer sent the other three out and sat down on a chair, folding his arms. Marco Andrat, while we were in the shelters, you expressed a desire to fight next to the Madalimas of Terra, the overseer said. I did, Andrat said after a moment. It took him a moment to remember. But he remembered it with perfect clarity. Is that still true? The overseer asked. Andrat sat and thought about it, the overseer waiting patiently. Finally, Andrat looked at the overseer. It is. The overseer nodded. 
The Confederate military forces are recruiting Neo-Sapiens like your people. You are a good, solid, dependable being and a hard worker. I will be pleased to refer your name to the recruiters. Thank you, Overseer, Andrat said, and meant it. The Overseer left. Two days later, the Terrans came and got him. They had him take tests, written, verbal, video, tests of logic and math and spelling and problem solving. He answered the question, one by one, if he could. If he could not, he simply moved to the next one once he realized that he could not answer it. After that came physical tests, then tests regarding his emotional and psychological state. Three days later, the overseer informed him that he was accepted into the Terran military and that he was to go and choose one of the many jobs that he'd tested for. The overseer urged him to be diligent in his studies when the Terrans trained him for his new job. Andrat agreed. A day later, the overseer came to see him off as the Terrans loaded him and the others into heavy vehicles to take them to Camp Alpha for training. A year later, Andrat went to see the overseer in his new uniform. The overseer expressed pleasure at seeing him and expressed pride in Andrat at graduating from a difficult Terran military training. He told the overseer that he was a heavy weapon specialist in the Terran army now. The overseer urged him to be diligent and attentive to training and his duties, as the overseer was ensuring that the Neo-Sapiens, the people, under his care received the highest level of comfort and necessities it could. Another year passed. Andrat trained hard, mindful of the overseer's words. He often wrote to his family and to the overseer about his training. He learned how to use many different weapons, from the simple magnetic acceleration pistol to the massive 155mm Halbor crew-served self-propelled gun. He learned to operate weapons from the doors of strikers, mounted on vehicles, or just plopped into the dirt. He learned how to call for close air support, for artillery, for orbital bombardment, for medical dust-offs. The overseer wrote back, praising Andrat for his diligence. It had been two years to the day that Andrat had joined the Terran military when it happened. The sirens went off again. This time, the words from beyond were different. You belong to us! End of chapter. This is a special thank you to the one, the only, the legendary Erak Hino, who has become the only Tier 6 patron. I just want to thank the T5 patrons and channel members. Bob the Dragon, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Australia the Dreamer, Trigan95, Pudigiol, Meridian117, Elithia, Jordan Buxbaum, Angry Marine, Albarden Gasta, and Barky. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. There are links down below both to support this channel and for the author of this fiction. Anyways, I hope you all have a fantastic one, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.